Hey, Neurohacker community. Welcome to episode number 48 of the Collective Insights podcast. My name is Jacqueline, and I've been doing the intros on this podcast for several months now. I wanted to finally introduce myself. I'm the one behind the scenes of the Collective Insights podcast, helping to make all of these episodes happen. I want to thank all of you guys for listening. We're coming up on our two-year anniversary of the podcast this month, and we have over a quarter of a million downloads now. The Neurohacker community is so brilliant. Yes, that means you. We love when you guys leave us comments on social media or contact us through our website. There are so many brilliant minds amongst our community of 90,000 people. Do you know how big of an impact we can make if we come together and share about this amazing episode with Mike Mutzel? I'm setting a goal for us to get 100 reviews on iTunes and also to share this episode with a friend. In this episode with Mike, we're talking about the keto diet and also his awesome journey of growing up believing he would be a failure, going through addiction in his younger years, to now creating this beautiful community around his site, High Intensity Health, and changing people's lives by making valuable health information super accessible and understandable. So after you listen to this episode, go to iTunes to leave a comment. I want to get a hundred meaningful reviews. This episode contains awesome content, but we believe that real learning happens when minds get together, when we participate. So let's do it. We want these episodes to be shared because they have the power to transform people's lives. So if you know someone who struggled with their weight or struggled with dieting, will you please share it with them? Also, if you or your friends that you share it with have questions about this content, please leave them on our site at neurohacker.com slash keto, and we'll work to get those answered by Mike on a future episode. I'm really looking forward to reading your reviews. So without further ado, let's jump into the show. Here's Heather and Mike. Welcome back to Collective Insights. I'm your host, Dr. Heather Sanderson, and I'm so excited to be joined today by Mar- Mike Mutzel. Thank you so much for being here. Hey, my pleasure. Thanks for having me on. So Mike Great. has been interested in health and nutrition since he was young, all the while going through deep struggles in health and emotional challenges throughout his adolescence. He is now the founder of a very successful content site called High Intensity Health, author of The Belly Fat Effect, a podcaster, a YouTuber who shares complex science made understandable. So I have to just let everyone know that I got a chance to meet Mike about six or seven years ago when I was a student at Bastyr. And what happened was that my roommate came home and she's like, I met this guy. He's working for Zymogen right now. And he is so smart. You have to come and meet him with me and talk to him because he just has so much to share. And I wish that our instructors talked about the science like this because it's so easy to get when he breaks it down. So I cannot overstate just like how good you are at doing that. And it's it's really thrilling for me to have you here because when I met you, you had just had your first baby and like, mm-hmm. you know, life was kind of just getting started in these different directions. And now to circle back and see you again, like thriving is just, it's really, really fun. So again, thank you for taking the time to chat with Neurohacker and, yeah, um, and share your pleasure. insights. That so, is so funny. I mean, what a small world, right? I mean, I guess that goes to show that, uh, you know, for those of us that pursue like advanced degrees in this and we live this lifestyle, we try to make it a career and, and try to help other people because there's so many sick people out, out in the world. So uh, super funny that, that uh, yeah, we come back full circle years later. Crossing yeah. paths again. So yeah. you went on to study with IFM, Institute for Functional Medicine, and get the AFMCP, the Applying Functional Medicine and Clinical Practice. You have a biology degree, a master's in, um, it's clinical nutrition, right? Right. 
And where did where did you do that? Yeah, that was University of Bridgeport in Bridgeport, Connecticut. Oh, cool. So yeah, so they have a good program. They have an ND school as well there, mm-hmm. and that program is a little bit more not so much dietetic focus. When people hear about nutritionists, they think about registered dietitians, and that's a little bit more kind of uh, hospital type mm-hmm. care, a little bit more conventional, uh, shall we say. So Right. And you took more of the functional medicine path, which is so fun. We love that, yeah. obviously. So Mike, after going through your struggles early in your life, you now have created this successful brand. You've written a book that everyone loves. Um, you're, you're an inspiration. How did you get there? Can you tell me a little bit of your story? Yeah, great question. Well, I mean, there's m- many ways that I got here, but it but it came through a lot of uh, like self doubt, struggle, suicidal ideations. Mm-hmm. You know, long story short, um, you know, had a, a great upbringing. You know, uh, and my parents got split up when I was about four years old. Lived with my dad in a kind of a, a, a affluent area here in Washington in, in Bellevue. Went to a private school, did really well. Then moved to California with my mom and my stepfather, and uh, my stepbrother, my older stepbrother, was going through some challenges. Uh, I got exposed to drugs and alcohol at a very early age when I was nine. So I, I went through this, like I, I did book reports and all this sort of stuff as a young kid to basically flunking school, skipping school, uh, getting involved in drugs, getting arrested twice before I was 15. And so I was like, so I, I knew what it liked to bring that I knew firsthand what it was like to like have a terrible brain and feel like I couldn't remember anything, couldn't focus, like couldn't relate with people. I was emotionally stunted from exposure to these things. And so I was like, you know what? I've been healthy before. I didn't know, I couldn't quantify what health was, you know, at that, when I was 15, but I was like, I'm going to get back to that state and I'm going to start with my body and start working out. And I realized that like I was able to build self-confidence. I was able to then talk to girls. I was super shy because the only way before, you know, between ages nine and 15 that I could, you know, communicate with people was when I was, you know, under the influence of drug or alcohol. Right. So anyway, long story short, you know, I think a lot of people have, you know, they were overweight or they were depressed or, or they had, uh, anxiety or whatever. Like, so, so mine was totally self-inflicted. Like, yeah, like I was the one I got exposed to these things, but it's totally self-inflicted. And I realized that no one's going to have a pity party for me. No one's going to come save me. The only person that's going to get me to be the person that I want to be is me. So I realized that like my health is in my own hands. And, you know, I know some of us are, are dealt a bad genetic hand and we're predisposed to cancer at a young age or autoimmunity or something like that. But I think a lot of us, sometimes we stay in this rut of dis-ease or depression or, you know, lack of vitality be, because we think that someone doesn't understand me or these my parent, my spouse, my teacher, my brother, my whoever, my boss, they just don't get me. They they didn't have my struggles. But But I just realized that like, feeling that way, like killing myself is not going to solve the problem. The only way that I'm going to solve my problem is to do the work. And I saw instant changes, like changing my diet. You know, back then my uh, stepmother was actually into Atkins. So we, you know, she was like getting these low carb bars and we started cutting out carbohydrates. I mean, I'm not in any way saying that I've been keto since like the 1990s, but she, you know, she influenced me and she introduced me to a chiropractor who got me lifting weights. And, mm-hmm. and he was like, back when I was 15, after I got arrested the second time, I cleaned my life up and he was like, look, you got to do lunges, you got to squat, you got to do these full body weight exercises. And over 20 years later now, I'm like, that's what I preach to clients because we see so many people in, especially women in their late thirties, their bodies change after kids. And they kind of panic and do more and more cardio and it, it causes like the uh, the adverse response that they want. They want to burn fat and sometimes catabolizes muscle and, and so forth. So anyway, long story short, you know, it comes from self-doubt, feeling like crap, honestly wanting to kill myself to, okay, the only way I'm going to get out of this is if I 
it make continuous small little improvements every day. So, so I want to go a couple directions with that. One, sure. I really want to dig into the keto diet with you today, but sure. before we go there, we've all experienced struggles, right? And I think you're very relatable in that way. You've also built a business, a very successful business. You've written a book. Those are big things to bite off. What keeps you going? What are the tools that you've used that really get you through the struggles and onto the other side so that you could become successful? Yeah. So that's a brilliant question. You know, one of the things that I've, one of the tricks that I play on my own mind is I realize that like if I'm tired or I'm fatigued or I'm feeling lazy, I realize that other people are hurting. And what I mean by that, I feel like we're all on this planet to serve other people. And we all have this unique gift and everyone's gifts are so different. And that's what makes the world so unique. And I feel like that we need to act on these gifts to get more gifts. And it's, you know, it's kind of this thing if you look at like, and I hate to relate this to money, but if you look at, you know, you see sometimes rich people get more rich and more wealthy and people that are out there giving, serving, you know, people in our own space, Mark Hyman, other people, it's like, how are, how do they write another book? How are they in this docuseries? How are they starting this other business? And I think, you know, they really, if you, and I know these people, they come from a, a place of giving and serving and they, they feel compelled or called to do something. And yeah, that's the, what I leverage. I don't know if, if I'm, you know, called to do this, but I know that, you know, I, I really enjoy this and people benefit. And so if I'm ever feeling unmotivated, tired, fatigued, whatever, I just think about how many people are not benefiting from that. And I write it down in the morning. I use Brendan Bouchard's planner. He has a great planner. It's on Amazon. His name is Brendan Bouchard. He wrote the uh, Motivation Manifesto, a bunch of other great books. And so that's just one thing that I leverage. And I do the same thing as it comes to health, right? Like there's times that I don't want to meditate. There's many times I don't want to exercise. There's times I don't want to eat healthy. There's times I'd rather drink alcohol than not. Right. And I think, okay, well, what would the person that I want to become like my future self, what would that person do? Right. Because we all should be continuing to grow. And also I, I think about my daughter as the most important person in my life and think, well, would my daughter want her father to be drinking or sleeping in or doing whatever? And so it's a way to just kind of reframe. I think a lot of us struggle sometimes with motivation, with drive, you know, it's just, part of humanity. And we need to constantly have all these like backup plans in our mind to trick ourselves. And I think the biggest thing, again, is just realizing that all of us have this gift. We need to use it to help other people. And when we're being lazy, playing video games, whatever, watching TV, we're not helping other people. So that's what drives me. What a fantastic tool set. So one of the really big topics that you talk about in your podcasts, on your YouTube videos, in your um, book as well, and the number one question we probably get is around ketosis and fasting. So I just want to dive deep into that. Um, tell me everything. Sure. Yeah. I mean, there's so much to it, you know, and, and one thing that got real, me really excited about the ketogenic diet, and we kind of talked about my past was uh, how it affects the brain. And I know all of you are very interested in, you know, neurophysiology and uh, some of the metabolism within the brain and neurotransmitter profiles. But as one who was, was abused and alcohol, um, gotten a lot of like fist fights and stuff like fights with my older siblings. Like I'm concerned about my brain health and malcognitive impairment and CTE to a certain extent. So, um, when I started to really dive into the neuropharmacology of nutritional ketosis and, you know, some of the, some of the epigenetic and neuroepigenetic effects, meaning, so a lot of us know that we have genes, right? But we sometimes forget that there's this kind of software that's really governing the hardware of our genes. And that software is the epigenetics. And so we can influence this, you know, just 
just like, you know, we, we open up our iPhones or our computer, it says, hey, you need an update, you know. Um, well, we can update the epigenetic uh, software that control which genes are expressed or not expressed. And it turns out that the main ketone metabolite, beta-hydroxybutyrate, people know this as exogenous ketones, you know, the BHB and so forth. That is an epigenetic modifier. It affects histone acetylation, which really at the at the kind of the the crux of how genes are turned on or turned off has to do with this cellular wheel called a histone. And the acetyl groups uh, control the relaxation of that and therefore gene expression. So long story short, you know, the ketogenic diet is not just like swapping out one macro for another in your bloodstream. Like, well, you're just cutting out one. And it's, it's, it's a little bit more than that. And that w w is what got me very excited. And so it has to do with, uh, you know, the signaling pathways, the sirtuins, brain-derived nootrophic factor, and all the kind of downstream metabolites that occur uh, through the signaling imparted from ketones, and namely uh, beta-hydroxybutyrate, but we're finding, I should say, we scientists are looking more at how acetoacetate, so-called so the mother molecule, the mother ketone molecule, how that also affects gene signaling, and I will say just acetyl-CoA or acetyl groups in general, which are... Uh, kind of the intermediary between free fatty acids that are lipolized from either you know our fat stores or from our diet, uh, and then those in themselves have signaling properties as well. So it's not that glucose is inherently bad. It's just that when we and it's all a matter of proportions. You know, even if you're fasting for four days, you're still utilizing glucose, right? I mean, gluconeogenesis is occurring. It's, you know, just a matter of proportions. And when we start to become a little bit more fat adapted and pivot more and we get less hangry, we're going longer between meals and, and you know, able to feel okay and thrive on that. That's associated with a metabolic signature that's characteristic of these, uh, you know, epigenetic and, and uh, metabolic signaling pathways that, that are very favorable. And, and I think particularly when it comes to brain health and neuropharmacology, mood and, and affect, I think that's the big thing that is, is really kind of important because a lot of us don't realize that even in depression, uh, there's glucose changes and different glucose utilization within the brain and, and neurotransmitter profiles. And I think, um, you know, this is a great metabolic nutritional therapy that has these translative effects, particularly, you know, beneficial for the brain. Do you think that this question is fully answered? Do you think the science has, has completely answered that Keto, going into ketosis and being keto adapted is positive for the majority of people. Or do you, are there questions that you would still like to see scientists ask, asking and getting answers to? Um, you're really good about presenting the science in a lot of your videos. Um, what lingers for you, if anything? Yeah, that's a brilliant question. You know, I think I think there's some bioindividuality, uh, particularly in the rate-limiting enzymes, HMG-CoA reductase, HMG-CoA synthase involved within the liver that are responsible for taking dietary fat or body fat and then packaging that into a ketone. And so we now, know individuals... Those, um, I'm just going to say those enzymes might be familiar to people because that's where statins act, right? Exactly. You... On the very similar. So these are these downstream pathways that are basically uh, responsible for... Uh, they're, they're involved in lipid synthesis and cholesterol synthesis. And um, yeah, and so there, there's different 
uh, what we call single nucleus. There's different polymorphisms or variability. There's flavors. Everyone has a different unique flavor. And so I think for some people, it can be challenging. And so, so we do hear people say, well, I tried intermittent fasting. I tried ketosis and I ended up in the emergency room. You're like, really? How could that possibly be? And so if we don't get a concomitant rise in ketones associated with glucose reduction mm -hmm. upon fasting or eating a low carb, high fat diet, then basically we don't have enough energy in the system. It's like trying to drive your car through the Alps with no gas. You're just not going to be able to do it because, you know, we need to, the brain needs either glucose or ketones yeah, because we can't directly, and it's kind of interesting how this works, you know, because the brain can use fat. It just can't directly utilize fatty, free fatty acids from the bloodstream. They need to be kind of packaged in a ketone payload and convert within the brain. It's kind of, in, but yeah, back to your question, there's definitely individual characteristics here uh, in terms of the, the metabolism. But also, it's not like all keto diets are the same, right? Like we can measure ketones by eating ham, cheese, and junk, you know, or bacon. we, yeah, bake, or, you know, we can have, you know, free range eggs, egg yolks, we can have almonds, avocados, you know, salmon, right? So there's, I think, you know, the diet, the public feels that the ketogenic diet is just like this one thing. And the only thing that matters is having high ketones. And I, I think, you know, we're going to learn a little bit more uh, over time, you know, kind of about the nuances of that. And because there's many people that are in ketosis trying to lose weight, but they're like gaining weight or they're not losing weight like they think. So I think there's a lot of nuances here that scientists over time will be able to help us better figure out. And I don't know if that's going to be new testing technology. We're looking at, you know, real time insulin. But, I, you know, I the take home message here is I think everyone needs to experience some sort of self-induced food restriction through time-restricted feeding or intermittent fasting. That's a natural way that, that lends itself to the, the neuropharmacology and the metabolic signatures that are characteristic or synergistic with a ketogenic diet. You know, a lot of us, you know, have a autophagy deficiency from just eating all the time, right? Like we're just constantly eating every three hours and that's not good for brain health. So I think a lot of us can benefit. You kind of pick, you know, your fasting plan du jour, you know, is it 16-8, is it 20 hours fast, four hours eating, whatever it is, based upon your your history, your metabolism, your goals, right, your lifestyle. But I think a lot of us need to start there. Then it's like, okay, well, you know, how much carb restriction do I need? Am I overweight? Am I pre-diabetic? Do I have diabetes in my family? Am I an athlete? Like, do I have concussions? Like, there's a lot of variability there. And I think that's where working with nutritionists, doctors, naturopaths, things like that, um, help people to really customize this because it's not just like, oh, you're in ketosis. Okay. You're good to go. Right. There's a little bit more to the story. Yeah. So do you recommend that people, you get a ketometer? I have, you know, in my clinical practice, lots of people interested in this and I struggle to kind of decide what's the best way to approach it for each person. And, and absolutely, I couldn't agree with you more. I think there's a lot of variability. I have those type A patients who are like, I want every metric I can possibly get. Mm -hmm. And so they're going to order the ketometer. They're going to be looking at blood glucose and, um, you know, track all of it and send me the Excel spreadsheet. And then the other people who are like, just tell me what to do. I don't want to know anything else. Do you have a place that you start or resources that you can point people in the direction of, um, in terms of just where, where to get started? Yeah, that's a great point. You know, I think checking your glucose and ketones together periodically, and I like people to do this like first thing in the morning, 
you know, right after a meal. So you finish eating, check where things are at, then then kind of follow, you know, the glucose tolerance test. But instead of, you know, eating a bunch of crap, you're eating your normal meal. So what you're doing is you're, you're testing your diet in real time. And obviously there are some imperfections to just looking at glucose and ketones. But if you look at them together, I think it gives you an insight into how your body is processing the food that you're eating. Because we know that, you know, cardiovascular disease, atherosclerosis, cancer, these aren't phenomena of fasting. They're phenomena of the post-meal or post-prandial window. And so we need to kind of see how our body is processing food. And so I think it, it, it is a good idea. And I think, you know, maybe I'm biased here, but I think part of the success of the ketogenic diet is because for the first time, people are then acutely aware of what is affecting their ketones and their glucose. Because oftentimes these ketone meters also test glucose and now more and more people are becoming aware of this. So I think people are realizing like, wow, even though that was a gluten-free cupcake or whatever, right? It tanked my ketones. And they're kind of curious, like wonder why that is. What if I you know, have an avocado instead next time, for example? Or when I stayed up all night on Friday night partying, drinking wine, you know, my glucose was like 130 the next morning. What the heck, right? And so I, I think there is some insights to, you know, looking at the quantified self, right? But mm-hmm. I don't think that we can make total extrapolations in, about this, you know? So, yeah, yeah. In my practice, I've had like a husband and wife will decide to do it together, which I think is a fantastic idea. If you have a partner who's doing this with you, especially if you tend to eat your meals together, to be doing it together makes it so much more um, accessible and easier to implement. But there are even nuances between them. So I had a classic um, husband-wife came in, and he would be kicked out of ketosis when he had zucchini, and she wouldn't. Um, She would stay in ketosis. So there's all this individuality in terms of how people respond. And is there a way to understand what's going on for you personally without the ketone meter or the glucometer, each of those pieces? Yeah. That's a great, great question there. Um, you know, so what I look at is heart rate variability as well. Mm-hmm. So I look at, you know, and, and quantifying sleep with the Oura Ring. So that's something we've been doing for a number of years now. So uh, I, I, so that's that's w- what else we look at. You know, I mean, there's other other tests you can use uh, for heart rate variability. There's the first beat. There's the polar unit. There's elite HRV. Um, so for a while, I was doing that first thing in the morning, my heart rate variability. But now I just, you know, rely upon the Oura Ring because the elite HRV as much as I like it. Uh, sometimes it wasn't syncing with my phone and things like that. So, but then the other proxy that I look at that is free is strength. And so I, mm-hmm. I like to, that's why I encourage people to have some sort of recreational activity that they really enjoy. That's kind of quantifiable. So that can be Pilates, that can be yoga, that can be weightlifting, CrossFit, powerlifting, whatever, you know, because you know that if you're in that downward dog when you're doing yoga and it's really tough and your shoulders are shaking, something's wrong. Like you're under eating, you didn't get enough sleep, something is wrong, right? Or if you're trying to do a bench press and you can normally do 200 pounds, but now you can only do 180. Like to me, that means something is wrong. So that's why I like to encourage people to figure this stuff out. And that's why I'm not a huge fan of just going on the treadmill or going on the cardio elliptical and kind of watching TV and moving around because there's really no way, unless you're looking at the wattage, which is a direct power output that you're putting into that exercise, you can't really directly quantify that. Um, so that's another proxy that I, that I use frequently. It's like, if my strength is going down, something is wrong and it gives me a good insight. It's like, okay, well maybe I need more carbohydrates. Maybe I'm overtraining. Maybe my diet, you know, I ate too late and didn't get good enough. 
enough sleep, right? There's mm-hmm. a lot of different things, but that's just one really accessible one that you don't need any tools for. Ways to get some feedback without it being like a meter that you have to order and then have right. strips for and all that. And then, um, so you were talking about exercise here. Is there a way to get benefit from the keto from ketosis from a ketone diet and not exercise? So can you do one or the other and still get benefit, or do you really need to do both diet and exercise? It's such a great question because there's a lot of people that are not low carb or keto at all and they have high ketones because they exercise. So it's it, it doesn't mean that one doing one obviates the need to do the other. I think we all ideally, and if you look at hunter-gatherer people, unindustrialized humans, they walk, they garden, they work with their hands. So I think exercise is kind of built into our DNA. It's hard, I should say movement in general is hardwired and it's indelibly inked into our, our, our humanity blueprint, right? So we need to be moving. Uh, and I think exercise, well, I, I don't think I know exercise can enhance or an augment ketosis and fasting. So if you're going to do say a 24 hour fast and you do a hike in the morning, for example, you're going to be in ketosis right away. You're going to deplete your glycogen. It's going to accelerate all the benefits of fasting. A lot of people are trying to enhance autophagy, right? Through fasting, but actually there's a ton of data in humans showing that exercise is a much better autophagy than enhance, enhancer than fasting. It's okay. much more I'm going to stop you and have you tell us about autophagy. So what is it? Yeah. So, I mean, it literally translates into uh, self-digesting in Greek. So autophagy is a cellular process that uh, it's very nuanced. You know, um, there's glycophagy, nucleophagy, mitophagy. There's all these different subtypes of autophagy. But a lot of us are interested in in this as a way to kind of get rid of damaged organelles, damaged tissues, uh, particularly for people that are optimizing brain health. Our brain, our neurons can accumulate proteins and protein adducts, and that can lead to neuronal degeneration. And so we want to be able to snip up those damaged proteins, recycle them, reuse them, or get rid of them as waste. So this is a really hot topic. I feel like autophagy now is where keto was back in 2016. Like it's just growing like crazy and it's all linked and interconnected with fasting. So you know, long story short, there's a lot of different ways we can enhance autophagy. We can take rapamycin, which is an mTOR inhibitor. mTOR, uh, when it's activated, suppresses autophagy. So if you inhibit mTOR, it's thought that you can upregulate autophagy. Um, and so and long story short, um, basically, you know, there's a lot of different ways that we can undergo or enhance autophagy. Uh, part of it is glucose restriction. So we can drive down our glucose with things like metformin, with berberine, with a low-carb, high-fat diet, with exercise with fasting. There's a way to kind of drive down uh, glucose and kickstart fatty acid utilization. And uh, part of that fatty acid utilization um, is mediated through autophagy. But what's interesting is, you know, when we go to yoga, when we go to Pilates, when we lift weights and we get sore, that sore feeling, these so-called adaptations that enable us to be stronger for that neck workout are autophagy so your muscles literally are an indirect proxy of autophagy. And so that's what's super exciting. So these, there's been a lot of different studies in humans that have looked at different autophagy initiating proteins in the serum and in white blood cells. And they found that exercise is a reliable way to enhance autophagy. Now, a lot of people say, well, wasn't there that guy in 2016? I think the Japanese man, I'm forgetting his name at at the moment, he published studies on fasting. And so a lot of people think that fasting is like the only way to enhance this 
protective process that's associated with longevity. But again, there's many ways to go about this. And that's why I think fasting is great, but also you need to exercise as well. Because if we look at the amount of data we have on exercise in humans compared to the amount of data we have when it comes to enhancing autophagy through fasting, it's weighted in favor of exercise. And not to say that fasting is bad, it's just if you want to be really evidence-based about this, uh, exercise is a wonderful way to enhance autophagy. Yeah. And so one of the things that Daniel, who's here at Neurohacker Collective, we talk about this model of medicine where thinking about any dysregulation really stems from too much or too little of something. And mm. you can have too little stress. So if you don't have enough movement or, or stress on the on the system in that way, then you're not going to have balance. You're not going to, you're going to have a dysregulated system at some point. And having these stressors at either end of either of calorie consumption or of movement or even of oxygen consumption can really create a, a body that can, can adapt to the environment. And that resilience is what's equated with health. So it sounds like the, this autophagy is um, and senescence is another word that I think is related here that you hear more and more lately. Um, it, it, this process of killing off the cells that maybe aren't serving you anymore and making room for those youthful, good, healthy, well-communicating, well-functioning cells. Is, am I understanding you correctly? Yeah, as I understand it, the, the same thing, right? So if you think about just what you said, right? Um, you know, people have some unmet need. So for example, if I just sit on my couch all day, order Uber Eats and pizza and everything like that, there's no real demand to make my muscles stronger. There's no demand to get rid of excessive protein accumulation in my brain. So think there's there's no hormetic stress. And so that's the thing where, where people hear and associate or, you know, confuse stress as being bad, but, but, but exercise, like doing a podcast like this, getting up on a stage in front of people doing Toastmasters, whatever it is, you know, that's positive stress that leads to growth and adaptation and positive change. And so I think, you know, um, right. This concept you know, of hormesis. Hormesis. Yeah. Like a little, like a low dose poison. I mean, if we look at all the, so quote unquote superfoods, the polyphenols, the blueberry proanthocyanidins. We look at rosemary, garlic, elagic acid, sulforaphane. You know, a lot of people think, oh, they're so protective. But you're like, well, how are they protective? They're inducing mild hormetic stress, like within the cell that induces, say, NRF2, which is an antioxidant response element. And so, so it's kind of funny, like how exercise, you're like, well, wait, exercise increases interleukin-6. Isn't interleukin-6 linked with cancer? You're like, well, yeah, but in in a, in a chronic upregulation of interleukin-6 drives inflammation, but short-term adaptive leads to favorable changes. So I, I love that analogy that too much or too little, I think a lot of us, um, you know, I learned from Sid Baker, and he always talked about how some people have this you know, disease, like uh, some unmet need or something they need to get rid of, right? So um, that can be too much of something, too little of another thing. And so I think a lot of people need to, to kind of think about that root cause, because even in the context of autophagy, too much fasting is problematic. Certain cancer cells thrive on autophagy. Uh, certain viruses and, and uh, you know, different uh, immune stressors and things like that inhibit autophagy or upregulate autophagy to evade the immune system, right? So it's not like even if we think about this cool thing that everyone's excited about right now, having that chronically elevated is you know, problematic. So context yeah. matters. And Sid Baker, that, that's great. I mean, stress, uh, he is somebody who has popularized introducing parasites into the system as a way to balance the immune system. And right. um, I, I mean, I can't think of really one an, another um, therapeutic, <laughs> sort of controversial therapeutic um, treatment that would 
you know, be a little bit counterintuitive, kind of like what we're talking about. It's the stress on the system, but that ultimately leads to more regulation and balance. Yeah. And for people that are super interested in that, uh, the great book, Epidemic of Absence, uh, Moses Valesquez-Manoff, it's a complex thing, but he, his whole thing is like, we were exposed to all these parasites and, and stuff growing up and rat feces and everything like that. So our immune system be able, like became tolerant of that. And that now that we've taken that away, our system doesn't know basically where it's entered. So it turns on to our own self tissue. So that's a great, you know, way to kind of reframe this and understand that, like, you know, we're living our life out of balance. And a lot of us, you know, just like the, we evolved with parasites and, you know, bugs and everything like that, we evolved to move. And so a lot of us are not moving. And so therefore we're getting these cardiometabolic aberrations that manifest really and affect our brain, which is pretty scary. Yeah, that is a fantastic book. He takes sort of a journey around the world yeah, uh, looking so at all these this epidemiological data about how parasites are good for us, which is right. so counterintuitive. And, you know, we spend so much time thinking that bugs are bad and it, it's entertaining, it's well-written, and um, I think a, a great idea to share. Um, the biggest challenges that people typically face when changing their diet, what do you see yeah. come up? You know, I think the biggest thing is meal frequency. And so the, the, you know, a lot of people come at this from hearing about, you know, the 1990s, you know, 2000s uh, dietary advice, you know, like if you don't have protein every two or three hours, uh, you're going to basically fall apart and, and you need to stoke your metabolic flame with food. And so I think that, you know, because fat is digested a little bit differently than carbohydrates and proteins, you know, we need bile. It takes, there's just much more time. You know, there was one study, it's, you find, you would find this super interesting. These Canadian scientists radioisotoped uh, palmitic acid in, in some food. I can't remember what fatty food. So they were able to see how it was metabolized and so forth and how long it was taken to metabolize. And, and they found that this palmitic acid uh, from just one, I can't remember what type of food, it was in the enterocytes of the gut for 24 hours after the meal. And and other, you know, radioisotope labeled carbohydrates are long gone. Like they're in the muscle, they're in the fat, like they're long gone after 24 hours. So the, the take-home message is if you're switching to a ketogenic diet, you need to understand that you need to compress your feeding window and not eat so much frequently, right? So it's going to be a one or two meal a day, maybe three at most, right? But it can't be keto breakfast or keto coffee, keto breakfast, keto snack, keto lunch, like that's not going to work. That will lead to weight gain, indigestion, you know, issues related to gallbladder bile function. So I think that's the biggest hiccup is like when you make this switch, it's like you're, you're do, implementing some aspect of time restricted feeding and you're changing your diet all at once. Cause I made that mistake and I was having like an avocado and nuts for a snack. Then and I was like, I just feel bloated that Deanna and I were looking at each other back in 2015, like this keto thing kind of sucks. And then we started to kind of think about it. I started to dive into the research and I found, you know, this lab that was talking about this second meal effect and all this, how fats take so much longer to break down. And I was, for me, that was a light bulb moment. But then I started to, you know, interview all these people at that time and so forth. And everyone was like, yeah, I'm just doing one meal a day. I'm just doing two meals a day. I'm like, wow, they're doing it like unknowing of the scientific data from these Canadian scientists. So that's, I think the biggest takeaway. Uh, and 
I would say trying to eat a little bit seasonally and not be too dogmatic about it. You know, as people listen to this, it's probably going to be early, middle summer. And look, if there's butternut squashes coming in season or blueberries or whatever, you don't need to be a hero. You know, you don't need to be, oh, I'm keto all year round. I think there, we need to have a little bit of flexibility. We know from animal model data, hibernating bears and different animals, our microbiome and, and our metabolism kind of changes with the season. So I think, you know, having a little bit more flexibility is key. And, uh, you know, so people are naturally up longer. They're more active in the, you know, in the summer and the spring and so forth. So it kind of makes sense. You can afford a little bit more carbohydrates, but those are the two things that I think are the biggest. You know, in my practice, I typically tell people that I don't want them to be stuck in ketosis forever. I want them to go back and forth and have this dynamic ability to respond to the environment again, this hormetic effect and be able to burn both fat and burn sugar when that's, when that is reasonable for whatever's going on. Can you speak for or against that? Do you think that's a reasonable recommendation to make? Or is there literature that says otherwise, that maybe people should be in ketosis forever? That's a great question. You know, I don't think anyone really knows, um, but, it, but it certainly makes a lot of sense to me uh, based upon, you know, the changes of the seasons and so forth. And, you know, I mean, there is this interesting data coming out, you know, about metabolic flexibility and that, that we kind of lose that ability to pivot back and forth. And, you know, if you are in ketosis for a long time, it doesn't mean that you're going to be unable to utilize glucose for fuel. But I think that just, you know, it, it's so new in the sense, like, even if we, let's just take a step back and just say the power went out, you know, it, and we, you know, if you, we, we live North of California, how are you going to get avocados and nuts and seeds and, you know, all these keto foods, right. Uh, during certain times of the year. So I think part of it is we need to be a little bit more flexible with that. And, but, but that being said, I think if someone has a disease, right, someone has autoimmunity, has epilepsy, someone has, you know, nerve CTE, Alzheimer's, then that's where it's like, maybe you limit that flexibility a little bit and consider this like a medical diet. Uh, and, and then hopefully you can remediate things and, and then introduce more flexibility over time. But I think I'm on to your point. Um, first of all, you know, it can be boring with any diet long term, it gets boring. I love avocados, but there's days where I'm like, oh man, I can't have another avocado. Right? <laughs> so yeah. I don't have that problem. <laughs> right. Um, the labs. So one of the other things that's come up for me clinically is that um, the labs go haywire. And if somebody's seen a conventional physician and that cholesterol level, that total cholesterol level starts to creep up over 200 as they're adapting, the, their doctor wants to put them on statins. Is there some nuance to the way to interpret lab work while you're going through this, while you're kind of starting to get into a keto-adapted lifestyle and even like years into it, how do we interpret these labs? Yeah, this is a great question. You know, Dave Feldman is an engineer who's come at this from a kind of a um, beginner's mind, basically, and has some really compelling data, has thousands of people submitting their cholesterol levels and all that. And so, yeah, it, there is going to, people are going to look like they're, you know, going to keel over of congestive heart failure, but he's actually uncovered a lot of the raw data. So the, the interesting thing about medicine is we see a study, we see the pretty statistical analysis in the charts, but we don't see the raw data. And he actually has uncovered the raw data from the NHANES uh, data. So thousands of data sets and stratify them for age and all this. And, you know, they're really, it, it, 
you know, and even looked at, there's only seven centenarians in the NHANES data set, but the six out of seven uh, had high LDL cholesterol, by the way. So it's, it's kind of interesting, like the, should we be so scared about the high total cholesterol or high LDL if and only if these criteria are met and that triglycerides are low, HDL is high. And so in those contexts, is LDL problematic? Again, so if you have low triglycerides, like triglycerides under 80, I think is his kind of cut point, uh, HDL over 60, I believe it could be around there, but but higher HDL, lower triglycerides, then it's like LDL, high LDL is not necessarily problematic uh, because it's kind of this whole metabolic symphony. And he has some really, I've interviewed him, he's got some great YouTube videos that people are interested in this. But but yeah, so I think that's, instead of just looking, you know, you know how allopathic doctors like to look, they like to look at one little mechanistic biomarker and then, you know, their toolbox is intervention, you know, drugs or surgery, right? So I think people need to be a little bit less skeptical of that and realize how, take into a consideration how they feel, how is their energy, how is their body composition, how are the other biomarkers in context of this so-called uh, atherogenic marker. And so, yeah, it's going to look different. But And then also I think, you know, it's interesting for people to instead start to do postprandial blood work and start to look at how are their mm -hmm. lipid levels in the postprandial window. And I think that's kind of where I've been following this research since 2009. I think it, there was a, a consensus paper that said, you know what, you know, heart disease is not this, you know, like I said earlier, it's, it occurs in the postprandial window. Mm -hmm. Atherosclerosis, the hardening or the coronary artery occlusion is from, you know, damage after a meal. Mm -hmm. So why are we doing fasted lipid tests? And so I think even my mom, she got her blood work through Kaiser the other day. She was like, Mike, you wouldn't believe it. She's like, the doctor told me not to fast. I was like, she's like, it's the first time, like in like 20 years. And I was like, really? That is so cool. So it's actually becoming more mainstream that we're realizing that, you know what? We're getting false positives from people fasting for 12 or 14 hours. They're looking squeaky clean when really their metabolism could be a train wreck. So keep that in mind as well. Yeah, I think there, we called it the milkshake study. Um, I remember mm. reading about people who consume a milkshake, so high fat, very high fat, very high sugar, that the you can see the tightening of the arteries, so you can see occlusion, um, and the diameter of where the blood is meant to flow gets smaller. So that's essentially what leads to a heart attack or a stroke is not getting blood flow through the capillaries. And um, right after having high fat, high sugar, that's exactly what happens to some degree in everyone. And if you have that atherosclerotic plaque there, then it's even more dangerous, right? So um, how fascinating that somebody at Kaiser is starting to look at those postprandial lipid levels. And, and, you know, sugar, insulin, of course, we've been looking at that for a long time wondering how the body is reacting um, with certain inputs, um, both fasting, and I think both are probably relevant, right? Both fasting and postprandial, um, but putting them into context and, and having enough data and enough information so that we know what that means. And I don't, I don't know that we do right now. Yeah, well, you're right. I mean, maybe it's a conversation for another time, but they, they were talking about the cutoff point for triglycerides, mm -hmm. postprandial triglycerides. You don't want them north of 200. Oh, and so good. that would give you an idea that, you know, so if that person with the high LDL, when they go keto, if they're like, well, okay, you know, maybe it is a little bit high fasting, but what, what do I do after, say, 90 minutes of a bulletproof coffee or some sort of keto meal? And if there's not this so-called so post-meal hyperlipidemia, then maybe it's not so much of a 
problem. So I think, you know. Oh, that's, that's really helpful. I hadn't heard that. Thank you. That, that's yeah. super helpful. So what if somebody falls off the wagon? So parties, birthdays, summer trips, you know, these things happen for the holidays. Oh, my goodness. Um, I've got so many patients that come in in January. Like, all right, I fell off. I enjoyed Christmas. What do I do now? So what do you suggest? Yeah, that's a great, great point. You know, um, a friend of mine, Mark Bell, he just talks about putting points on the scoreboard, right? So look, um, you know, this all happens to us. I mean, sometimes we stay up late and watch Netflix and we feel terrible the next morning, like we screwed up our sleep and all that. Look, just get some small wins, go for a walk. Just just try to do something and uh, put some points on the scoreboard. And and then over time, those all those small points will add up to a big win. And so I think that's the thing, like we're gonna make mistakes, like we're gonna follow off, we're gonna, we're gonna go be with people that are not on the same wavelength and we'll be tempted. It, look, it, it happens as part of being human, but um, you know, just try to try to do something like we talked about earlier, like reframing, like when you're fatigued or you're tired or you don't want to build your business or whatever. Um, you know, just think you have to have little tricks and little little uh, tripwires built in. So if you know you're going to go to a friend's house and there's going to be a lot of alcohol, a lot of junk food, maybe have a little bit of whey protein shake beforehand. It will have improve your satiety, have some MCT oil potentially, like figure out what's going to work for you to help blunt that. And then also keep in mind your long term goals. Right. So why are you doing keto in the first First place and try to link that with something big like I'm doing this for my business I'm doing this for my grandchild I'm doing this for to prevent whatever so then you think about okay well is eating this cheesecake or pizza or drinking three bottles of wine or whatever it is is that going to how is that going to affect this big goal that I have and oftentimes the short-term gratification of whatever that food or alcohol is is not greater than this big goal that, or big dream we have so again it's all these little tricks you got to play with yourself all the time I love <laughs> all these little hacks that you're sharing thank you um, any other hacks that you use to improve your metabolic health? You've talked about diet, ketosis, this mindset about exercise. What's your relationship with sleep like? Yeah. So uh, I just got the gravity blanket. Have you, are you familiar with this? I'm not. Oh my Who gosh. This in? has been a game changer. Yeah. So I mean, sleep is a, I, so me, I notice whatever, for whatever my brain, how it works. Like if I didn't get bad sleep, I totally notice it. It comes through in my articulation, my speech, my word retrieval is totally tanked. So sleep's very important to me. Uh, mouth taping is a big one. So the neuropharmacology, the physiology of that is when we're in REM sleep, all of our muscles become paralyzed, including your tongue. And if you're just hanging, your mouth is wide open, your tongue collapses on your airway. So by taping your mouth with some 3M micropore tape or Somnifix, basically you're entraining your brain to learn to breathe through your nose. And so that when you're in REM sleep, you're not becoming paralyzed and, and hypoxic. So that's unique. Uh, the gravity blankets, amazing. I have no financial affiliation with this company, but uh, basically it's like this 25 pound blanket and you feel like you're kind of in the in your mom's womb, I guess is the biology of it. And man, uh, my REM and deep sleep has been off the charts. So that's huge. And just good old fashioned sunlight. You know, we have chickens and pigs. So the first thing I do in the morning uh, after waking up and having some salt water is go out and let them out and feed them barefoot. And then we have a little uh, just a cold plunge. It's only a hundred dollar, like a hundred and ten gallon uh, trough. It's like for like feeding animals, or whatever. You can go to tractor supply store and just ask them for a hundred and ten gallon trough. So I just jump in that and it sucks every day. It doesn't get better. <laughs> <laughs> and like this morning, I really, really didn't want to go. And so that's just another thing, like getting back to the mental trick is like, 
if I can jump and because it's been really cold here in Seattle recently for some reason, if I can get into this freezing ass cold water right now, like the rest of my day, like there's no email, there's no phone call, there's no podcast is going to be more challenging than that. Right. So, um, these are all like inexpensive things. Backyard mm-hmm. chickens are cost six bucks a chicken. Like it's super inexpensive. You can walk barefoot. It's cheap. Jump in the cold water. So those are, those are the things that I like to do. So, you know, as many of your listeners probably know, a good night's sleep really kind of starts with like what you do in the morning, your sunlight exposure. And then I walk my kid to school every day. Like we're like the only, only parents, like it's all these drive and I know them feel guilty because they're, they don't even wave anymore. They're just like, Oh, here's the muscles walking their kid to school in the rain. You're like, you should be walking too. So yeah, those are just a few of the things that we do. All right. And on that note, I think you need to go. Are you walking or pick biking? You got to go pick her up. Bike. Yeah. Bike. Nice. I have a bike race in uh, two or 10 days. Yeah. So oh, I've so been like, training. Tra- I just trained commuting. Yeah. So love it. yeah, love but it. thanks so much for having me on. This has been a lot of fun. Hey, any takeaway that you want to leave our audience with? Yeah. You know what? I know everyone, I know a lot of people that probably listen to your podcast care about their brain. And I just want everyone to know that your brain is changeable. And if anyone is living proof of that, it's me. Um, my, you know, people that I piled around with when I was 10, 11, 12, you know, and stuff like that. Some of them are living in motorhomes and jail and all that. Like, um, I totally transformed my brain with nutrition and with lifestyle and I continue to transform my brain over time. So, uh, people need to realize wherever they're at, you know, I think the brain is one of these organs, just like our muscle tissue. It's really plastic. It's malleable. It's adaptable. So, uh, just put as Mark Bell says, put some points on the scoreboard every day, learn, you know, brush your teeth with your opposite non-dominant hand, like do different things all the time, not just nutritionally but for your brain um if you're watching netflix like try to remember the characters names and like quiz yourself at the end like there's all these little things you can do that over time have sweeping effects on your on your body and brain which i think are cool mike it's been such a pleasure to have you here i've learned a bunch i know our listeners have as well and um we can't wait to have you back because you have so much to share you're so inspiring thank you thank you enjoy your race Will do. All righty. Have a good one, guys. You too. Take care. Bye, Mike. Bye. Thank you for being with us for this conversation with Mike Mutzel. Don't forget to leave a review on iTunes. And if you have any questions or comment, leave them on our site. And we can work to get those answered by Mike in a future episode. Also, check out our free ebook that offers a well-rounded approach to brain health, The Foundational Guide to Neurohacking at neurohacker.com slash guide. Make sure to subscribe to Collective Insights wherever you listen to podcasts so you don't miss an episode. See you next time.